Apparently when Nelson died, it was the last thing to pass his lips. Really? No. (laughs) (laughs) Got me for a moment. (laughs) Hi, I'm Derek Morrison from The Good Wine Shop, and welcome to episode three of Bring Your Own. Today's session focuses on wines from South Africa. South Africa has a long and rich history of wine production, but the current generation of winemakers are making waves across the world with exciting wines and challenging the status quo. We've gathered a group of wine lovers to share bottles from their own cellars and to chat about what makes the region's wines and people so unique and captivating. We're really fortunate to have two winemakers joining us today. Craig Wessels from his winery Restless River and Hannah Storm from Storm Wines are both here from the Hemel and And we also have Canada-based wine writer Treve Ring rounding off the panel. Special thanks to the great team at Terroir Wine Bar in central London who hosted us for the filming of the episode. Located just around the corner from Trafalgar Square, Terroir is a must-visit for any wine lover. You can find them online at www.terroirwinebar.com. Listeners, please be aware, at times this episode contains some adult language. If you enjoy the episode, please take a moment to give a review online. Follow us on social media at BYO Podcast and share this episode with your friends. The video version is available on YouTube, and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch all future episodes. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Uh, why don't we go around the table, introduce ourselves quickly. Uh, start with you, Hannes. Um, I'm Hannes from the Yemen Arde Valley in, uh, in South Africa, um, 120 kilometers southeast of Cape Town. Uh, Treve Ring, wine journalist and judge from Vancouver, Canada. And I'm Craig Vessels, also from the Yemen Arde Valley. Uh, 120 kilometers southeast of Cape Town. <laughs> Great. So t- today's pretty special because we've got uh, both of you um, who produce wine in, uh, in South Africa in, your re- in uh, Himalayan area. And um, um, why don't we, we, we'll start off the tasting with uh, um, each of your wines just to go through. So why don't you tell us quickly about the wine that you brought. We'll start with you, Craig, because you've yeah. got the Chardonnay. Okay. And, um, and then we'll uh, tell us a bit about the wine and, and, and what you're up to in uh, South Africa. Yeah, okay. So... This is our 2015 vintage, which will be released in November. So we hold our wines back a little bit before release. Um, I grow two hectares of single vineyard Chardonnay. And uh, within that two hectare single vineyard, we do uh, four or five harvests of little parcels um, over about a two week period. Um, And it's a very simple process. The harvesting, uh, we whole bunch press in an old Vaseline uh, horizontal press. Um, treats the juice quite oxidatively. Well, actually, very oxidatively. It looks like coffee. I think I showed you that photo yeah, earlier. The wine is settled overnight. I don't have cooling, um, so it just settles naturally overnight. Um, and I rack it off its heavy lees into barrels. Off it goes. It ferments, it does its own thing. Sometimes the ferments last about two weeks, sometimes 60 days, just ticks along. Leave it on its lees for about nine, ten months, mostly in old wood. Um, This 2015, for example, had one new barrel. Um, And then take it out the barrel, bottle it. Uh, And that's pretty much it. But in terms of the wine itself, um, I tend to try and uh, focus on good acidity. Um, I don't worry too much about the sugar levels um, at harvest time. I heard a really great expression the other day, which kind of resonated with me. It's like, if you, if you think your grapes are ready to harvest, it's too late. Yeah, so you've got to catch it and uh, get, uh, get that really good acidity. Um, and... Uh, then kind of let it do its own thing after that, yeah. So just a purity um, and honesty to the wine, represent that vineyard as best as I can. Mm. Um, you know, do the vineyard proud, um, and then hopefully everything works out once we've bottled it, yeah. I just love how bright the 15 is. I mean, it's really, yeah. really exuberant, like it's really energetic. So. Well, uh, 15 in the Cape was a, a dry, uh, intense, vintage where we got a lot of concentration in the fruits so although this is um, I think around 13 alcohol um, there there's more fruit to this uh, vintage than you would ordinarily find in my Chardonnays um, but because we still were able to pick early there's a great um, line of acid that's running through that I think just keeps it kind of 
clean and fresh on the finish. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of the fruit, it's very much vintage related. And because I do so little in the cellar to the wines and try and express those vineyards you know, through farming them all year, um, I want vintage variation. Yeah. Uh, it, it is an expression of that growing season. So, uh, you know, it's, um, I'm certainly not looking for a Marlboro cigarette that is going to taste the same on every cigarette. You know, I, I'm happy with a bit of um, variation uh, every vintage. What are the soils like um, in this vineyard? The soils? That's a, a very good uh, question. I brought a bottle. Oh, ah. oh. <laughs> this wasn't even set up in advance. <laughs> you guys are in cahoots. All scripted. So uh, I brought a special bottle along f f for us to, uh, <laughs> to, to taste. But uh, it's, it's quite interesting because, and I'll do it this way, because this kind of is a good representation of what we're drinking. Because, you know, ultimately it's, um, it's about the soil. And what you'll find now is the changes as the soil deepens, where we're getting more into the clay and gravel. And then we're getting to the real, if you move this out the way, we're getting to the real clay here. And this block is called Ava Marie. So that's pretty much uh, where we're at. This, what, what remains here is uh, bigger gravel bits. But we've got a, um, a sort of a loamy topsoil that's quite shallow. Mm. Then we've got a, quite a gravelly layer. And then we go into this uh, decomposed granite. Mm. Um, does that answer your question? Ah. <laughs> we, still, we still manage to get a few organic uh, yeah, bits and pieces in here. Um, but basically it's, um, it's a sandstony gravel on top going down into a decomposed uh, granite. And uh, if you... Yeah, if you if you feel this clay, do that, and then and then rub your fingers together. You can see it's very um, talcum talcum powdery once you've let it go. It's really interesting stuff. The other cool thing about this clay is that if you if you actually wet it, you'll find in here lots of these little chips. Which mm. is granite, oh, yeah, uh, okay. uh, quartz, quartz, yeah. quartz oh, nice. from the granite. So as it decomposes, it leaves. Yeah. It actually the, this bottom layer of clay, if you cut into it, is just peppered with um, this quartz, and it, it sort of glistens like little diamonds. Yeah, it's great for drainage also. Yeah, very nice for drainage. And if you clean these little guys up, you can actually see as well that uh, it's sandstone, but it's what we call uh, coffee clip, which mm. means coffee stone. Um, these, these are just tiny fragments. A lot of the stones are probably 50, 60 kilograms, you know. Yeah, walking in the vineyards, there's these you yeah. know, huge stones. Yes, you, you, you yeah. Are, yeah, yeah, some very big stones. So uh, some of the stones we get uh, out of that vineyard when we rip are the, are the size of a, a VW Beetle. Mm. Oh, yeah, amazing. yeah. But, uh, you how know. Do you, how uh, do you plow that? With, <laughs> with, with a really big bulldozer, yeah. yeah. But that's kind of what we farm with. Um, that's the, this is the important stuff, you know. Um, I mean, it's great to drink the wine, but this is kind of where it all really happens. That's really cool. Yeah. And Hannes will know the soil quite well because uh, some of the vines that he's uh, using to make his wines are grown on, not exactly the same, but pretty similar soils. Yeah. So what's the distance so, between your two properties so, where you're farming? So these two vineyards and the one that I'll show, the Pinot Noir that I'll show, is also from the same appellation, the okay. Upper Yemen Otter Valley, and, and we're known for all the granite soils. And that's a, I think yeah. from that from that uh, specific vineyard, we we can't be more than half a kilometer, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah very close. So it's very close by. And it's uh, also close to the Anders River, so as you go into the river, you find this, um, this, this, these kind of soils. The only difference is um, my wine, um, the, the Moyas Pinot Noir, Storm Moyas Pinot Noir that we'll show, that has, um, I always... I always call it Chateauneuf to Pop when I when I walk those vineyards because it has these big river 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 pebbles on the top soil, which is just amazing. It's a very small area, but then uh, up uh, beneath that, underneath that, is you have exactly the same as that um, granite soil. So it's very well drained soils, um, very difficult to farm those soils and very marginal soils. And it's one of it's some of those soils that, within a, a blink of an eye, um, it can go from ripe. 
time to harvest to basically overripe, and you've yeah. missed the boat. So one must be very careful and very um, on top of the, on top of your uh, things to to make sure that you capture it at the right time. Mm. Well, it's a good segue. Hannah, Hannah, why don't you tell us a bit about the Pinot that we're drinking? Pass me, pass me that bottle just to show you the, the, the label. So it's a Storm Pinot Noir 2014. It's from the Moyes Vineyard. It's a single vineyard. Um, as I mentioned, it's from the deep compo uh, uh, composed granite soils and um, with those pebbles, rubber pebbles in the topsoil. So it's a 2014 vintage. That was for us um, quite an interesting, interesting vintage, quite a wet vintage. We had uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of rain um, uh, before the harvest and during the later phases of ripening. A cooler climate. Um, so I always say these wines of the 2014 vintage is very feminine wines, but beautiful wines. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go back to the wine itself, I think it's a, it's a wine that's actually opening up beautifully now. A lot of underbrush characters, a little bit of that cigar box, um, tobacco leaf, um, a lot of berries, uh, red berries, more red berry fruit. Um, but then with a beautiful natural acidity in the, the wines. The acidity, I mean, in both of these, just ringing. Um, and in 2014, it's not always seen, that yeah. acidity line, but I think where you guys are. So we're very privileged, I think, even in, uh, this is one of my single vineyards. Um, we do this, uh, 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 one of these in the Yemel Arda Valley Appellation, which is from heavy shale derived clay soils. And then we also, um, in 2015, started the Storm Reach, which is from the Yemel Arda Reach. Right. And that's from heavy shale derived clay soils, higher elevation. But I think the whole area, we are very privileged to have very good acidities. Um, and that obviously lower pHs and the mature, maturation potential of the wines, I think is just uh, fantastic. You know, everything for me, everything in life actually pivots around uh, pH. And uh, we have very low pHs. Yeah. That's a good bumper sticker. Everything in life revolves around pH. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, so basically our winemaking approach is a, a very natural approach. Um, we do it with basket press. We don't filter the wines. It's natural fermented. And uh, with that, you can basically, uh, with our pHs, we can, we, can, we can really get away with, with that. The alcohol of this wine, just above 13%. Um, and as, as, as I mentioned, a more feminine wine in this specific vintage. Uh, um, I, actually, um, I actually looked back, to, um, back a, a, a few days ago on our rainfall figures for the, that, uh, for the preceding year, 2013. And we actually had, uh, had rainfall figures which is totally off the charts. We had, uh, in the, in, on the end, of, um, in the end of November, we had like 220 millimeters in two days. And then three or four weeks before harvest in January, we had another 250 millimeters. Um, and that is something that's uh, kind of an anomaly in, 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 our, in, our, in our area. But uh, so I think the wines that turned out in 2014 actually um, was very good. And we're very happy with that. Yeah, I think 14 surprised a lot of people. It was very difficult, mm -hmm. and uh, the expectations were quite low. But um, if you weren't trying to extract a lot out of your, you know, if you just treated them with a bit of respect, yeah. they kind of gave it back to you. And it, it actually ended up being being pretty decent vintage. Mm. Yeah. Both the wines are beautiful, and both have such great, um, such a great kind of vein of acidity and great tension to the wines. And then. I mean, maybe it has to do with the fact that my hands are literally in the soil of both vineyards <laughs> right now. But like, you can really feel that kind of that more that kind of more um, um, robust salinity that comes. I mean, a bit more of that depth of uh, the texture on the mid palate. I think another thing that, that we haven't mentioned that plays a huge role in our area of the three the three wards in the Yemen and Arda is the fact that we're very close to the cool Atlantic Ocean. And I mean, those temperatures are on average about 12, 13 degrees Celsius. So the cool southeasterly wind that blows quite a lot, especially in the ripening times of, of the fruit. It's, it's wonderful to cool down those grapes and just preserve all the, preserve the aromas, you know, so. Well, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you in terms of what kind of, you're getting pretty big diurnal swings in in the evening in terms of it must be very hot growing days, but it acts as a moderator. So we don't get big yeah, diurnal. Very, 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 oh, okay. not, um, yeah. very, 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 very consistent. But, uh, but in a, in a great- It's cool during the day, actually, relatively speaking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and when you look at the, the, the industry as a great, uh, holistically, um, we're fairly cool. Um, obviously, in, yeah. in the world context, we're fairly a uh, warm country, but I think we'll be very much different than, than the, the warmer areas in South Africa. Yeah. And I think these are, uh, it's really exciting to show these wines to start because it's so much the antithesis of what the negative impressions in the international markets of South African wines were for so long. It's, you know, the, the first thought that you have of South African wines in many markets for, for a long time, and I think there's been a lot of shift away from that now, is not really tense saline, van de terroir, pinot yeah. and chardonnay, and these are both quintessentially that. Yeah. You know, we've got the, the, the vineyard on the table at two degrees to show that, but it's, and these wines are so exciting to, to I think taste. there was a, a general renaissance that happened for you in the early 2000s, and I think, um, 
every every winemaker just started to realize, and, and actually grape grower, soil scientists started to realize what what potential can be can be achieved from those sites. And the more site specific one can produce wines, I think just the more interested it gets. And and everybody is, is is producing fantastic wines. And we are very very positive about all the all the great um, commentating from 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 the globe. You know, so that's something to yeah. aspire to. I think. Yeah, absolutely. How many wine producers are uh, making wine in Hemelinard and in Elgin. Craig will know the numbers better than me, but uh, so um, probably twenty. Yeah. 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 So but uh, Elgin is it? I don't know much about Elgin. They're quite far away from us. Mm. But in the Hemelinard, um, I'd say twenty. Okay. Um, and that includes some guys who are doing some really small uh, sort of few barrels, right. um, but not a lot of them, but uh, yeah, on, on average about 20. Um. The, the, the great thing about our area also is um, of all the producers, everybody makes wine to be bottled mm -hmm. and to be marketed as wine in a bottle. So we don't have any right. bulk wine, uh, bulk wine. So yeah. the quality over the broad spectrum is, is of very good quality. So everybody is really um, getting the most out of those terroirs that we work with. And that is very exciting. And the, the other really exciting thing I think is that we're all uh, working together. Um, so, the the winemakers are not necessarily the owners of the properties, right. um, but nevertheless, uh, the winemakers are um, having dinners together, brides together. Um, they're discussing what they're doing in their cellars. They're tasting each other's wines. Um, they're doing wine tastings of other wines. It's a very um, collaborative. There's a good camaraderie going on there. You know, they're borrowing each other's cellar equipment half the time and. Um, and, and I think through, through that, there's a, a, um, a common kind of uh, philosophy within the, the winemakers in that valley of, of, of the style of wines and mm. that we're trying to um, as, aspire towards, you know. Um, and I think the guys do a pretty uh, good job and they, they're fortunately all pretty good winemakers too. Um, and they really respect the, um, the vineyards that, that the fruit's coming from. Um, with a pretty common uh, kind of end goal in mind, you know, um, and it works. So there's not vastly different wines coming out of uh, the Hemel and Otter Valley. You know, there's, there's kind of a, there's a common thread that you could weave through a lot of those wines. I mean, obviously there's an, the, the, the exception, but in general, it, there's a very, there's a stylistic uh, sort of result that's coming out of that valley. Right. That's, that's terroir driven, but also, you know, we, we're part of that terroir and if we choose to go and, massively extract yeah, or pick ready to ripe, we can, you know... I think all the wines are fairly un understated and more yeah. uh, gravitating more towards the old world, you know, and, and, and it's, it's actually very wonderful for, for everybody around, around us uh, having the same philosophy to, yeah. to, a, to a more or lesser extent, you know, so that's, I think that, 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 that can just make the area much more, much more powerful and, yeah, and, and, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's really great. I think that's one of the things in terms of what we're seeing in this market, especially, is and not just in the Himalayas, but but across um, across South Africa. I mean, we have 40 producers here this week that all have that shared kind of philosophy on how they can represent the integrity of their vines and the integrity yeah. of their vineyards. And I think that for me, that's what's got me, and I think so many consumers in the last you know five years, especially within the UK since I've been here, um, to build up the enthusiasm and, and excitement about these wines because it's not only just what's in the glass that's fantastic and what we're tasting that is exciting and diverse and dynamic but just everyone behind it that there's a real um, it's it's really easy to get excited about um, what you guys are doing and the way you're approaching your wines and, and so many of your contemporaries that are here as well um, that I think that's that's feeling feeling a lot of this cascading effect in the market of you know year over year we're seeing so much more consumer attention to the wines because they're phenomenal I mean and there's just some 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 so much integrity behind them and I think that's what um, we I think we see too little of in so many sectors of the industry is yeah. that lack of integrity I and mean, it's so easy to be disenfranchised from yeah. wine and disenfranchised from regions because you know, when you what you see in the what you see in the grocery stores and the supermarket on the shelves is not reflective of the small artisanal growers. But I think it's it it, it uh, transcends beyond the Himmel and Otter Valley, which incidentally, for people who don't know, means heaven and earth. It's Afrikaans for heaven, oh. heaven and earth. Um, very high mountains and big skies, and but the uh, it transcends the valley, and it, I think it really spills over into um, just the youth and energy in South African winemaking in general at the moment 
and there's very much a renaissance if you look back at our past and where we are now and uh, it's just it's a great place to be and our timing is right um, yeah, yeah. we're at the right place at the right time and we're loving what we're doing and we're very privileged and, uh, to have such a special uh, beautiful area in which to grow our wines and I'm not just talking here and Art, I'm talking uh, South Africa yeah, yeah. and um, you know we, we, we're the underdogs it's so nice to be the underdog yeah. we've got fuck all to lose mm. you know we're going to go out there and do whatever we want to do. We don't have to prove anything because we're not on any pedestals. Mm. And uh, we just go out there and do our thing. And uh, it's working, you know. So everybody brought a bottle of wine tonight that uh, hopefully, from their own sellers, is hopefully kind of uh, got an interesting story about why you brought it or why it's, why it's uh, interesting to you. Um, uh, we'll start with mine. And um, I brought the uh, Radio Lazarus uh, 2012 from uh, Alheit, uh, which is... Um, it was one of the first wines that was kind of uh, my South African wine epiphany in lots of ways. Um, uh, let's get some in the glass here, I'll pour for, for you guys. So this was kind of my, not introduction, but um, when I, I, a place I used to work in central London, um, my first staff purchase that I bought was um, a bottle of this and a bottle of Jean-Francois Ganavat's Grand Tep Chardonnay. And, um, both were pretty uh, 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 um, eruptive wines for me in terms of how I had it. So this was kind of the first. Someone had told me they said, oh, "You got to try. You got to try these wines and, and um, grab a bottle." And so I, I, I had uh, I, I grabbed one. I took it home and then we drank it as part of the dinner. And it just kind of blew me away in terms of it was just the opposite of these kind of over manipulated, over over manhandled wines. It was just so intense and pure and dense and had all this energy for me and. And it really kind of stopped me in tracks and go, is that what Chenin Blanc is supposed to taste like? Um, is that what South African wine is supposed to taste like? Because it was so different from anything I'd had. And, and after that is when I, I really started to get interested in some more artisanal producers, what was going on. So um, I think this is one of the first vintages, if not the first vintage of the Radio Lazarus, which is an old vines plot. As the name implies, there's, got, you know, there's a radio tower at the top of the, the hill of the, of the vineyards and there's two sloping plots kind of uh, into each other. And um, but what I love about the wine, they're working really quite minimalistic in um, terms of how they're vinifying and kind of akin to, to, to yourselves in terms of really trying to reflect the, the terroir and the wines. And, and um, you know, of course, like any, any idiot wine drinker, I, I drank all of the bottles <laughs> before, um, prematurely. And so it was really quite special to be able to find a bottle of this to bring it back. So it's a 2012 vintages, which is, uh, um, as I said, a few vintages back. And um, what's fascinating when you taste the wine is it's still so young. It's still got so much density. I've decanted it twice to get it um, to loosen up a little bit. But um, I think it's, this was, for me, one of the first wines that really started to kind of... Uh, um, inspire that uh, um, focus and attention to some really serious, unique uh, wines of place that, uh, that were being done. And um, um, I was lining up to load up on more of the 2013 and the next vintage, and then he didn't make any. It was all added into his Cartology blend, so, yeah. uh, which is also fantastic wine. But uh, um, yeah, so this has always been a special wine for me, and it was really the first of my South African wine epiphanies that uh, uh, really got my attention and got me to focus on the wines. from and in some way, indirectly, I'm into your guys' wine, so. Beautiful good, example. Good choice. Yeah, beautiful. So he's, how, he's not too far from you guys as well. Yeah, it's about, uh, from me and from our cellar, about one and a half kilometer. So it's very close by. From him, maybe two and a half, two kilometers. Mm -hmm. Very close by. I mean, it's cool because you've got so many different micro terroir um, and kind of, or, sorry, microclimates within, within this, in this site. I mean, you do great Cabernet, um, you do beautiful Chardonnay, which we just tasted, some beautiful Pinot that we've tasted, and Chardonnay from you as well. And we're tasting this Olvine Shannon. How do you find the diversity of, of the region as well in terms of how you, um, what you're working with, and like what the wines are being created? Because it's quite, quite amazing to see great examples of I think of each it's of important to note that uh, these uh, old vines aren't from our yeah, area. So um, maybe you, with your knowledge on the older vineyards, could just quickly fill us in on the, the whole kind of old vine movement that's currently underway. Well, I think it's really important for South Africa right now, and they're really leading the way, I mean, around the world with protecting these old vines. Yeah. And we were talking earlier, you know, not all vineyards are worth protecting. But in South Africa, especially, there's incredible plots of really old vines that have been neglected or have been undermanaged or underutilized that people are now rediscovering. It's thanks to you know people like Rosa Kruger and her now Old Vines project. Yeah. 
Um, these are quite old vines in Stellenbosch, and like you say, the two vineyards facing each other on a, on a hill, two different slopes. And what people are doing to, to go and rediscover these old vines, for one, old vine Shannon can be exceptional, right? The old bush vines, the gnarly yeah. vines can, yeah. can really be otherworldly. But then the yields are often a lot Very lower, high. right, yeah. of these older vines, yeah. so it's not always economically yeah. viable. And it's one thing for people like us to sit around and say, oh yeah, old vines, we love it, it's so romantic, yeah. let's preserve, you know. But for the growers that have to make a living off of these, it's not always sustainable. So what projects, I think, like the Old Vines Project are doing are incredible for raising awareness and trying to help yeah. um, the, you know. And actually just to add value to those specific uh, vineyards, you know, at the end of the day, before, before the, the movement of Old Vines and people pursuing that, that dream is basically, some of these old vines, the grapes ended up in big, big, huge blends. Cooperative wines, not necessarily bad wines, but it was just basically disappearing into a sea of wine. Uh, so, and that for me is the most positive part of it. You know, if you can add a bit value. A lot of it was being uh, then distilled for brandy. Yeah, that also, yeah. And imagine you distilling an 80-year-old Chenin Blanc plant, the grapes coming from that, from a beautiful site, beautiful fruit. I mean, and that, that for me is uh, very positive. And, and Good brandy, though. <laughs> also important. Very important. Yeah, who's thinking about the brandy yeah. producers, right? Yeah. So are the are the growers? I mean, because you guys work with different growers. Are growers that you see embracing this or thinking towards older vines? I'm not such a good important? person to ask. I only make wine from the grapes that I grow. Okay. Um, so I'm very fortunate in that regard, or unfortunate if you look at it financially. And I think um, Hannes would be better uh, suited to answer that. I think it, is, it, it differs from grower to grower. You know, some of the growers are very, very positive about that, and they also get obviously a lot of positive spin-off from that. Mm -hmm. But then also it's an educational uh, it's a whole, a whole educational uh, thing to do, you know. And you need to, you need to embrace the the old farmer and, and, and the landowner for him to, to, to understand wine. Some of them don't, don't understand wine, and if one can can get them on your side, it's great. And for me, it's a, I think overall, overall it's a, it's a very positive, uh, very positive thing. It's a win for everybody if you get it right, yeah, you know. And, right. and and the the bigger picture there is um, sustainability. Uh, you know, we, we come from a pretty checkered history and there's a lot of issues uh, that we've got to deal with on a daily basis. Just look at our rugby team. <laughs> uh, you know. uh, anyway, point is uh, sustainability and um, the farmer who farms his grapes, who gets paid a decent price, can pay his laborers more. They can uh, send their kids to schools and get a better education and that cycle uh, will eventually, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, it'll just... Uh, start to work itself into a point where there's upliftment across the board, you know, and our South African wines are way too cheap. Way too cheap. And it screws up uh, the whole value chain uh, and the people who farm the, the grapes, not the farmer himself who owns the land, but the people whose hands are in the soil or holding the secateurs all day, you know, they're the guys and their children, uh, and that's been going on for generations. And it's you know we, we need people to appreciate the wines more, to see value in them, to pay more for the yeah. wine. So it will trickle down to so that trickles down, and, and everyone benefits at the end of the day. You know, we, I think we must be one of the few countries where um, we just the value chain almost ends once you've sold your bottle of wine. And we're not able to pass that on to the the rest of the people involved in what made that bottle. Mm. There's a bigger picture to just drinking a glass of wine, you know. Um, there's also a lot to be said about thinking about nothing and just enjoying the wine. Okay. But, uh, you know, there's, there, there's, there's always more to any story. And South Africa has some very interesting stories and, and, uh, and issues and problems to solve. And, uh, you know, I think we can do it to a certain degree. Agriculture employs a, a very large portion of the population. So, you know, people need to just give that a little bit of thought sometime. Not too often, but sometimes. Well, I was talking with a winemaker yesterday, and he said that they have a really old vine or old vineyard, Shannon, that had they found and had been totally, um, you know, just neglected and not really farmed very healthily, sustainably in the last few years. And in the last three years or so, they've made a lot of improvements in the vineyard, just sustainable techniques, more organic cover crops, and the yields actually have now gone up. Yeah, in that's this. possible. And so yeah. the grower is seeing. 
okay, I, I, I can make more money if I farm yeah. sustainably yeah. and take yeah. care of these vines, yeah. and I have a, a vintner who wants to pay me more for That's, that. Yeah. So he said that was incredibly yeah. encouraging. Yeah. So Trevor, why don't you tell us a bit about the wine you brought today? Yeah, um, so you asked us to bring something special from South Africa. Me not being from South Africa, I thought, well, what can I bring that kind of hits on all the points that I'm really excited about in South Africa right now, and it's Craven. Um, Pinot Gris, 2015 from Stellenbosch. So Mick and Janine um, make this wine. It's a single vineyard wine. All of the Craven wines are single vineyard. Um, there's not a lot of Pinot Gris in South Africa. I don't know if you guys have ever worked with it there. There's like a little, little pockets. Yeah. Uh, this was planted in 2005 um, and they turn it into uh, an orange wine, which is again kind of on trend around the world. It's 10 days on skins to give this color. That's gorgeous. Um, and nothing, no additives, nothing taken away, just a little bit of sulfur before bottling. That's really clean, it's really juicy, it's got a wonderful texture on it. Yeah. You feel a bit of that kind of maceration so you get it. Oh, you absolutely do, the, the texture and grip. I mean, so many people in the, in the, so many consumers have no idea that it's like a, it's a gray grape or a, a rose, you know, kind of a pink skinned grape because it's, you know, it's this is the most probably commercially abused grape in the market, we can probably say. Not too far from Chardonnay, to be honest, uh, um, in terms of being an, as an abused grape. But, you know, when you see, there's a few, you know, a, a, few, a, friend, of, a friend of mine, well, a friend of ours in um, the Okanagan makes a great, you know, Pinot Gris on, uh, on the skins at, um, uh, um, at Nickel Vineyards. And um, I just, these wines have so much character when they're vinified this way, and uh, especially when they have this kind of texture and, and um, you know, it relies on the proper ripeness of the grape. And um, you can feel that. And, kind of the completeness of the wine, I guess. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you look at what people are tasting and drinking and excited about in the main cities around the world, like, you know, I travel all the time, you guys travel all the time, people are drinking lower alcohol wines, uh, single vineyard wines, wines of, of place and terroir. I mean, of course, yeah, orange wines or skin contact wines. Yeah. Um, this embraces all yeah. of that. Yeah, for me, this has that viscosity. It has a, has a very, very, good acidity, long, long finish. And I see the alcohol is just above 12%, which for me, you can drink more than a glass. I mean, you can even drink a bottle of this. The other thing it has um, is a story. Absolutely. And, you know, I think so much has to do with the story behind what, you know, behind that wine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that tells a story. I'm not sure exactly what it is, we could spend a bit longer with that bottle and it'll yeah. talk to us yeah. more, yeah. tell us its story. But there's a story behind that wine, you know, and, it's, and that's what's interesting. Yeah, it, it's that's the beauty of that wine. It can taste X, Y, Z, yeah. and, but it's telling a beautiful yeah. story. The South African wine regulations have always been quite problematic in terms of people doing stuff that's a bit outside the box. Have you, have you ever encountered any of that in your, own, in your own work or in your colleagues' work where, you know, Audi had a wine that he couldn't export for a long time. Another friend of mine I know has another wine that, because the alcohol levels at a certain degree, they can't export it and anything that's a bit off-piste. Do um, you think there's been an evolution now? I think the whole wine spiritus board that controls this actually, um, they, um, they've, they've shown some leniency towards, towards that because, I mean, a wine like this, there's a, there's, there's a place for it. Yeah. And uh, so many of those wines, they've been categories um, developed um, and in, in implemented to, to make room for those. Yeah, in the last and 10 uh, years, they've really had to yeah. expand their, 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 what was previously tunnel vision. You know, yeah, we, didn't, we didn't really do much outside of a box. Yeah. Um, well, they have problems with so. this wine all the time. You know, they submit it mm. and they, they get their sheet back and it says, well, mm. look at the color. Yeah. This can't, this yeah, will no, not be acceptable as Pinot Gris. You know, we, all our wines need to be submitted Yep. for certification before we can, which yeah. is, um, you receive this uh, certification sticker. Yeah. And they will reject wines based oh, on... Oh, this has been rejected yes. numerous times yeah, every yeah. year. <laughs> but I think that's a, this is a, that, that's a crucial thing that you need to talk about when you're talking yeah. about South African wine and understanding the wines as they currently are and also the obstacles that you're faced, I mean, that you guys are faced with as growers in terms of if you want to do something a bit avant-garde or outside yeah. the box that it's... It's not like if you're in California or if you're in anywhere else in the world where you can because you have the freedom to do it. You in have California, to. where my brother's a winemaker, um, we, we have uh, conversations about this and contemplating around, around a lot of things, especially this certification issue. Um, they can bottle water then sell out this wine. Yeah. 
Yeah, they don't care. Problem. No problem. So we are very, very uh, regulated in that way, which has its con uh, pros, um, but I think it has more cons than pros, you know, if you really think about it. Um, it's, it's to establish a quality level, which we want. We want to export and we want to show the world and showcase quality wines. But if it's so strictly re regulated, it's very difficult to, to really yeah. use this right brain. You know? It wasn't long ago where Pinot Noirs would be rejected because they were too light. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, but what, what the, the big upside is wine of origin. We've got a very, very good, trustworthy, almost bulletproof, because uh, we get audited and, you know, it's a whole process. So if that wine says on its label where it's from, it is, it is from there. Yeah. There is no doubt. And we all know around the world that doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. You know? Totally, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, we, we, we talk often about comparing wine to, I think, music is a good parallel. What we were talking about earlier, you know, in terms of, um, how it's so different to the, each person's enjoyment and what, yeah. what resonates with them or any other kind of art where sometimes you can't necessarily identify the specific thing that mm. resonates with you, but there's something about it. And if you can imagine, you know, an artist like Prince or David Bowie or the Beatles even back in the day, if you can imagine that they had to submit their music yeah. to a regulatory board um, as you do have with your wines in South Africa, I mean, it's just such a... Um, a crazy thought to imagine, but it's, it's um, I think it's, you know, we did an episode, a, uh, a couple episodes ago about grower champagne and, and how much there's really a kind of, a, a, you know, the growers really quite kind of martyrs of the industry to do that because they're taking risks and sacrificing some financial benefit that they could make more money if they sold their grapes to a big house. And I think, you know, you can definitely draw the same line that it's important to celebrate the um, you know the the steadfast uh, um, yeah. um, you know commitment to that and and you know self sacrifice that so many growers in South Africa are doing because they believe in um, uh, something different that they want to express and 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 it's so much it would be so much easier to make this Pinot Gris as a conventional commercial Pinot Gris and sell it to uh, you know big groups across the across the globe but you know that that sacrifice or that determination I think it's really important and and, and it's quite unique to South Africa in the kinds of obstacles that, you, that, that you're faced with and, and um, that's also one of the things that I get excited about. For well, and people are paying attention like you know they make 300 cases of this and can you find it anywhere? No. You can find some in London, yeah. you can find some in New York, you can find a little bit in South Africa, that's it. Yeah, actually, like um, I actually, I, um, I just came from the east coast of America, and I, I saw this um, this brand in a few restaurants, yeah. top end restaurants in New York, yeah. which for me was very positive. You know? And it's at that small volumes, um, it's very important important to have it on the, on the right stage, yeah. and it's right there in the epicenter of where everything happens, you know, and here in London. So I'm I'm yeah. I'm very positive. So Craig, why don't you tell us a bit about the wine you brought tonight? I've selected um, a bottle of Kiermont Syrah, um, made by Alex Starry. The wine estate, the vineyards, are um, in Stellenbosch, but on the uh, Helderberg sides, on the, on the side that uh, is closest to the ocean. Cool. And it's quite a, mountain, a, a mountainous area, and these vineyards are quite high up, so good elevation. And um, the reason I chose that bottle is because I don't really drink uh, Syrah. Um, yet there's something about this bottle of Syrah that encapsulates a lot for me and it again takes me back to the story behind the wine um, and you know it's it, it it's easy to get caught up in the trends um, and uh, it's quite easy to make kind of light frivolous easy quaffing wines and uh, I've been playing around with some Grenache myself and, and doing that so I, I, I'm not saying I don't do it and it's and it's quite a lot of fun and it's quite an easy sell, relatively speaking, because it's new and it's exciting and it's different. And, but, um, you know, if you're in this thing for the long haul and you uh, are very serious about what you're doing, um, that bottle kind of encapsulates that for me. It's, it's not trying to be cool. It's not trying to be trendy. It is just a beautifully made wine that has got me to drink that cultivar more. Um, so I find that interesting, you know. Um, and I, I, was, I was chatting to Alex about it, and it's, um, he's a perfectionist with the way he does things. Um, and uh, if you know Alex, he's just the nicest guy you've ever met, you know, just a true gentleman. 
and it kind of reflects itself in that in that wine. Um, it's an honest wine. It's a pure wine. Um, a lot of the Shirazes that we drink, um, I never know whether to say Syrah or Shiraz. I guess it's a style, but it says Syrah on the on the bottle, so we'll call it that for now. Old world. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, it's um, it's just a beautiful classic wine that bucks trends in many ways. It's not low alcohol, it's not high either, but it's not sort of around 12, 13. Um, but it's just so clean, so pure, um, such a wonderful expression of that grape um, in the South African uh, context. And it's not even growing in a trendy area, you know, it's quite a traditional uh, area. Um, so sometimes the things that you don't expect uh, surprise you, and that's a special bottle of wine, I think. Um, and also, Alex said he'd give me 5,000 Rand if I settled down. <laughs> so, no, jokes aside, it, it's just a, you know, I mean, just let's have a little sip of this and tell me what you guys think. But, oh, it's so classic, Syrah. It's just a, there's a lovely honesty and a purity to this wine and, um, and a respect for that fruit, you know. Yeah, yeah what I, I love with the Kieran wines is they're just really, I mean, I guess you could say timeless in, in wine context. We, I mean, it's always classic and there's, they're always elegant. And, you know, for me, I always define great wines by balance. Yeah. I mean, you know, a great wine is always in balance. And, you know, wine like this, you can see in its youth, it's just so elegant and it gives away so much. And you feel that transparency of how it's basically just kind of saying, this, I'm, I'm, I'm a finesse wine from this place. And you feel that sapidity and that minerality or whatever, however you want to qu call it. But then you can also see that this wine is in such good balance that it can, you know, it can easily age so, so you know, effortlessly. I think also it's a very good expression of, of the 2014 vintage, which yeah. was actually in the Cape Winelands a uh, fairly challenging yeah, vintage. You know? about that earlier, and uh, for me to get this right with this wine, I think everything is in place. Um, and it expresses the cultivar also very well. You have yeah. all the peppers, the white pepper, good berries. You have the, wood, the use of wood was great, great in this wine. And I think um, for me, it's a, in a difficult vintage, uh, the winemaker did his part. Yeah, just well, on right? a technical thing, I mean, it's, that's what I was saying earlier. I spoke to him about the wine and um, not to get all sort of uh, geeky on it, but uh, it's simple. Four weeks maceration, mm. matured in 500 liter older barrels. Yep. He doesn't uh, fine or filter his wines, bottles it, you know, and there it is. I mean, it's so drinkable. I mean, as you say, I mean, it's, it's got a bit of this kind of quiet power, but it's also just so clean and, and um, well, silky it's, on the palate. It's mm. understated. You know, it's not, totally. it's not light in the sense that it's uh, mm. the, the sort of uh, the Burgundian classic uh, expression of the, the iron fist in a, <laughs> in a velvet glove. I mean, it's not, we're, not, we're not in that territory, but uh, it's, just, it's just an understated elegance that comes through. And it doesn't have to always be a low 13% or 12% wine, you know. I, th I don't think we should get too caught up necessarily in the, in the, in the, in the technical sides. You know, is it a great wine? Do you really enjoy drinking it? Yes. Well, then drink it, you know, yeah, and enjoy it. Some beautiful wines made from that area. You know, if you look at this, the Appalachian, there's a smaller um, ward basically on that on that slopes of the Helderberg. Actually, beautiful, beautiful wines. And I, I'm talking from uh, whites through the reds, the whole yeah. spectrum. You know, some great names, and they have the influence on the cool Atlantic Ocean quite yeah. close yeah, by. Yeah, they they beautiful they're soils. close uh, part of uh, Stellenbosch to the ocean. Yeah, you know, they're not far. Very very good yeah. good sites. It also starts to take us towards a different style of wines that we've tasted around the table so far in terms of getting us maybe a little wink at some of the bigger or more robust reds that are that are capable from South Africa. But yeah. it's easy to see how, you know, just be, you know, people are maybe too scarred by some bad commercial wines that they've seen in the past. But you can make powerful wines of elegance. And, yeah. you know, when I, I think of wines like, you know, Bocastel, Le Homage, or Homage from Bocastel, their top Chateau Neuf de Pape, which is this massive, powerful Mouvedre wine, but it's always light on its feet. Yeah, yeah. It's always elegant. Sure. It, always, it can be 15% alcohol, but balanced and, and, and really within itself. And, and um, I love big, robust wines that, you know, for me, I, I always tell them, say, or talk, I don't talk to the wine. I, <laughs> I when I talk after a glass, yeah. after a few glasses, maybe I talk to the occasional bottle of wine, and uh, we've had some disagreements, but you know. Um, but I, I always talk of these, these when I look at big, robust wines. I, I kind of think of Muhammad Ali, right? Float like a butterfly, sting yeah. like a bee. How you can maintain that 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 lightness and elegance on your feet and be dancing, but also have this um, indisputable power. And yeah. um, you know, this is kind of winking in that direction. It's such a 
I mean, it's great Syrah. I mean, I don't know if you love Coroti or you love, um, you know, some really kind of elegant Syrah. I mean, this is a, a really mm. finessed wine. Yeah, it's a world-class wine. Yeah, for me, it's for me, it's a wine that has yeah. the base note, but it also has treble, yeah. and that for me is very important, yeah. just to bring that spine. Oh, I like that. Well done. I'm gonna use yeah. that one there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hannes, why don't you tell us about the wine you brought tonight? Um, I brought something very special, um, not fitting into the category that we are tasting. So it's um, it's got a it's for me a history, hist a living history. Um, it's uh, the Vinde Constant 2013, the sweet wine, natural sweet wine from uh, from the Constantia Award in Cape Town. So this is where everything actually started in the industry, and uh, 300 years ago. So it's a it's a wine for me um, that that shows all the characters of of what it should be. And if you look at the history, the, the very good, the long history behind this wine, it's actually a very um, a good, good, uh, a good example of what we can produce in South Africa. So, this wine, if you really look back at the history, it's um, it's about uh, 300 years old and started in the 18th century already when they started making this sweet wine. It was actually a world-renowned sweet wine from from the Constantia region. And then at the end of the 19th century, um, Phylloxera basically eradicated all the vineyards and they had to replant these things. But it only happened in 1982. So in 1986 then they started reproducing this wine that was actually produced 300 years before that. So, and I think it's just a wonderful story behind it. You know, I mean, you, know you, you all know Constantia. I mean, that is... Um, you learned that in beginning summer yeah, school. So, right? um, yeah, that's basically it. And it's a part of the original farm that was 900 hectares um, at, at that stage. And it was basically divided into four different farms. And uh, yeah, this is this is where we are. I think it's about six, seven hectares that they have of this. Um, it's a Muscat variety, Muscat de Frodingham. And uh, they make this wine uh, in old school methods. Um, maturing it for like three years in barrel and then another, I think about six months in, in, in tank before bottling. So, so it's a very interesting wine and I think we need to get some of it in our glasses. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. let me help you, you here. Yeah. So are they raisining the grapes or how are they? Yeah, so basically how they do this is they, they make a base wine, um, a base wine that has a little bit of acidity and so forth, about a 10% of this is a base wine. And then they use that one later while raisining everything on the vineyards. And then they will they go through those vineyards maybe two, three, four, five times um, to re-repick and, and see what's happening there. And then they always have that base wine in the back um, as a as a magic tool to just make sure that we have enough of that that finesse and acidity in the wine. To freshen. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very very uh, tedious process, but I think the wine that's that's in the glass um, is really something that's that's very special. And and this is basically I would say by far the most uh, renowned South African sweet wine, you know. So there are lots of uh, different new, new newcomers, on the, new kids on the block. But this, for me, is really a, the epitome of what can be produced in South Africa on, a, on the international stage. And if you see just the, the accolades and the international, um, the commentating, the positive commentating on this wine is just immense. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, few wines as famous as this wine that deserve every accolade they get. I mean, it's just so beautiful, bright, elegant. I mean, it's... Um you know, it's a good. This is a good reminder that um, you know classics are classics for a reason. Our icons are icons for a reason. Well, and this that's is, uh, the thing. And they talk about South Africa, and they talk about okay. They lump it in with New World, right? New World winemaking. Yeah, no, we New World. This started in 1685. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're very that. New World. That's about 200 that. years older than Canada. <laughs> so, <laughs> just the, yeah, we're definitely old in a New World context. So, oh, you know, it's it's just. Uh, I mean, we are by far the oldest. Yeah. And I mean, those guys. Um, when the Dutch reached the shores of, of the Cape, Cape of Good Hope. I mean, it wasn't 10 years and they started producing wine, you know, so, and, and this wine, definitely, uh, it's, it's a wonderful living history for me. But I think, uh, I, I mean, I don't know the history too well, but um, I think there were quite a few monarchies in Europe that specifically mm. ordered that oh, yeah. wine. Yeah, no, for sure. It was, yeah. it was yeah. in those days. So it was world renowned. Yeah, this was the wines um, yeah. that were drunk by the enjoyed by some of the most important people in those days, you yeah. know, so, yeah. and it's wonderful to capture that, um, to basically take that history, although, although they were, there was a gap for, for a century or two almost, you know, and, and just take it further. Apparently and when Nelson died of syphilis, it was the last thing to pass his lips. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> Got me for a moment. <laughs> so this is the 2013 vintage. It's well, so good. fresh and so alive and so drinkable now, but you know that this wine yeah. will age. I tasted this, one of these wines over 100 years old earlier this year when I was in South wow. Africa. 
and it was still so exceptionally alive. Really? Fantastic. It Over 100 years old? Yeah. Wow. There was like, you know, yeah. this much left in the bottle and they were just yeah. going through some old bottles and they found, yeah. they found this and I happened to be around at that time and, then, and it was vibrant and... Someone so somewhere must own the oldest bottle Yeah, yeah, it's, it's available. It is definitely, there are some bottles lurking around there um, yeah, that will surface um, sometimes time to, from time to time. And I think it's just the preserving abilities of those high residual sugar. I think it's like 175 grams. Mm. And then you have a close to 14 alcohol, and yeah, and it's that not fortified. yeah, and the it's third thing, the third thing is that low low pH. Yeah, uh, totally. So I mean, this wine probably will go for the next five decades, oh, five 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 centuries almost. You know, it's I mean, it's good. I always look for in, in in sweet wines that that balance, that freshness, that kind of um, lifted acidity, or um, that gives it that kind of high tone personality, and which and I think of it being crucial to aging. And I, I like my sweet wines to have that freshness and and. Um, you know, not to say that more opulent styles aren't enjoyable, but this is what I like to drink, is you feel like you can have more than a glass, so you can, you know, have it with some cheese, have it with some dessert, but then have it on its own. And I mean, it's just so bright and energetic that um, ah, it's really cool wine. And, you know, this wine's really, the, I mean, the definition of timeless, and um, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's not that things. often you can buy a wine at this sort of price mm -hmm. that you can, you know, comfortably seller for, like you say, yeah, yeah, 50, sure. 60, 70. Well, there's a legitimate <laughs> history. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if we yeah. talk about the top, you know, the 10 most famous um, sweet wines in the world. Oh, I mean, it has to be in the list. Absolutely. And relative to wines like Ecam, the price quality that you get and the value is just immense. And it's, you know, uh, as historic, if not more. And, you know, still retaining some, uh, um, some really, it's really special. Oh, so that's rhubarb, rhubarb and um, all that spice that I get here, yeah. wow. citrus. Was marmalade, beautiful. I wouldn't mind if you'd brought a hundred-year-old bottle for us to taste. I'm, yeah, a, bit I mean, I'm a bit disappointed. You know, they do the f they do the 500 mil, the 50 cl That's bottle, it, and yeah. the one liter bottle. And we, you know, I think uh, I speak for everyone at the table when um, you you really should have brought the one liter. Bottle. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'll keep those for me and Craig when we have late when we have late, late nights. Late nights on the barrels, we... Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, when you got to top up the barrels, yeah. you got to reward yeah. yourself afterwards. Yeah, no, for sure. We have so we have those looking. So. Yeah. So Hannah's and um, uh, Hannah's and, and 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 Craig, I mean, you you guys are both making wines in the same area, but kind of coming at it from a very different um, um, genesis, I guess. So can you just talk a bit like how how did you end up making wine in in the Hemelinarde? Um, you know, when you did. I don't come from a, a wine background. Um, I grew up in a town called Durban, so I grew up surfing, um, and fast forward a whole lot of time. Um, I really wanted a farm and I got into wine from uh, the back door really by farming um, and being interested in the vineyards and um, I was lucky enough to in 2003 I planted a, a one hectare vineyard of cab which um, ironically I never got to ever make wine from um, and uh, then when we moved into the Himmel and Arda, um, the little farm that we bought and my wife and I, uh, was this really shitty, uh, the cheapest, shittiest little piece of uh, what they considered crappy land. And this was 2004. But uh, by buying that piece of land, I got uh, five hectares of vineyards in pretty bad condition. But nevertheless, they were there. And uh, so I was able to now have the farm and to be able to farm the vineyards. Um, and that's kind of been the, the most important part. But once I had the grapes, it was really a, um, a decision to start making some wine because I, I had the grapes, you know, and I, I figured, you know, how hard can this be? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and that's what got me started in 2005 and started making wine. And um, then I was really surprised at the end of that uh, sort of year, the wine was drinkable. You know, and then I really thought, this is easy stuff. You know? I mean, what are they all going on? Why do, you, why do you need to study this shit for? You know? And uh, anyway, so I got in that way and very, very soon learned how little I actually knew um, and then pursued a lot of knowledge but through reading and talking and like we spoke Both about... Yeah, like we spoke about earlier, the camaraderie in the valley and it's just a... And in South Africa in general, actually, there's a, there's, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of sharing and um, was able to start to... Uh, nurture that craft and um, take it further and further until it just became a complete um, 
passion and obsession. Um, and uh, I still approach it very much from the vineyards. Um, but obviously the cell is important too. Uh, but just keep things simple. Keep it honest. Keep it real. Um, and just make sure that your wine is expressing that vineyard for me. Yeah. And it's kind of, it ends there really. Cool. Yeah. So, Anders, how did, how, did, how, did, uh, how did you come to be making wine? Uh, I also have an interesting story, basically. Uh, I, I'm from Hermanus um, uh, for the past 25 years. And I used to, while I was study, studying at the University of Stellenbosch, I, in my final year, I had to do a compulsory practical period for like three months doing a harvest and just learning the ropes, um, the, th the, the practical side of, 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 of winemaking. And I, I did some mountain biking in the area, and I was... I was uh, Traversing the Hamilton Russell vineyards, uh, the vineyards estate quite often, and I, I just popped into the office and asked them, "Listen, is there any chance that I can maybe do my practical here?" And, you know, and, and it was a yes, and I, I was um, I was there, and in a, in a month or so while working there, they offered me my first job. So then I went back to the university and finished my studies, and and in 2000 I started my first my first uh, vintage there, and uh, I've been there for 13 years, but always dreaming about doing my own thing, you know. So. It was um, for me just to find the right sites because that's what everything's about. It's the soils and the sites, you know, and that sites must express themselves into the bottle. And that's, I was very fortunate to be involved in the, the development of some of the vineyards I worked with, um, especially in the Yemala Otter Valley, in the upper Yemala Otter Valley. And uh, in 2008, uh, planted, and uh, in 2012, um, we got our maiden vintage of Storm. So, of two Pinot Noirs, and it was always for us. Um, Less is more, less is more uh, approach, and then just to express that, uh, that wonderful grapes and, and vines and soils that we work with in the bottle. So I always say to um, people out there, they ask me, how, what's my influence in the winemaking and so forth, and I say it's 95% vineyards, it's 5% uh, winemaking, and 2.5% of that 5% is actually the time of picking, and the other 2.5% uh, pivots around the three words um, that's important in the cellar setup, and that's hygiene, hygiene, hygiene. You know? so, so that's it, the rest is history. Yeah, so um, we only do the Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because I'm very, very fond of Burgundy. Um, so three single vineyards Pinot Noirs, um, expressing three different worlds, and one of the Chardonnay that's from the Yemen Otter Valley. And that's basically my, my story. Um, it's all basket pressed wines, natural fermented. Um, basically, my dad also was always um, instilling this idea in our heads. Me and my brother, um, he's also a winemaker in California, focusing on, on Pinot Noir, having the same uh, philosophy. And my, my dad always liked wine. And we always had open bottles in the house. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we as kids um, had a sniff here and there and a taste. And I think that's just, uh, everything was parked there. And obviously, the parents are very um, f uh, proud of the, of the two boys and the, son, or the sons. And, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. For us, it's important just for, for you guys to enjoy the wine that's in the glass. And that's it. Yeah. So I know your brother makes wines in California, and you go and help him out from time to time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because we've got quite an international group here. Uh, what do you think are some of the contrasts you see in the different international markets, so the U.S. or Canada or, or the U.K. or even in, in South Africa itself or anywhere else you maybe go in terms of what do you think are some of the challenges or things that are working or that are resonating with people and, and what you wish people were getting more of? Well, I think, I think if you look at, into the, the countries we export to, for instance, we, do, uh, we export to 17 countries at the moment, from, from Scandinavia to South Korea. So it's, uh, it's, the whole gamut is covered, basically. But it's amazing. Here we are sitting now. It's an it's, it's a epicenter of, of the wine world because you're very close to, to Europe. And uh, it's wonderful to see all these different wines on one, one stage, you know, and to see that and to just see with what you're competing and also what you're part of. It's just fantastic. Um, being in New York last week and uh, it's completely different again. But also it's, it's, it's great to see that the wines that we are making get on the shelves of, of, of great places, uh, places that are, that are of interest of people. And um, I think we as winemakers, we love traveling, you know, and it's uh, wonderful to see, to see the differences and the places and just make, uh, fill in that library in, your, in, in our heads. You know, so. and I guess it's so much just to see people enjoying your wines in every different culture. I mean, Craig, you were just in Paris yesterday presenting your wines and, yeah, you know, yeah. what is the, you know, we'll think of the most impossible place to sell yeah. South African we're wine. We're selling right? snow yeah. to the Eskimos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a strange journey. You know, and uh, you never really know where it's going to go. Uh, there's so much out there. It's just such a privilege to be a part of that journey in, of wine and uh, the memory. And, uh, you know, it's, 
it's a very powerful uh, subject uh, to guys who are into it. You know, if you're into wine, there's so much um, happiness and wealth of and it's a very close knit family. Bring, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's such a close knit family. We, we had a chat. Not a lot of us, really. Yeah, yeah. I'd say if you yeah. if you look from the the the, the winemakers. Uh, it's, it's such a small world if you take it from the winemaker to the sommelier selling the wine and the, and the actual buyer that buys the wine. You know, it's, it's almost for me, I think, in the, I think when we're like 90 or 100 years old and we have like 60, 70 vintages behind us, we most probably will know the whole, the whole wine world if we, if we carry on at the rate we're doing yeah. it. You know? So yeah. let's hope for that, yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks so much, you guys, for coming. It's been an amazing evening full of some pretty special wines and some really cool conversations. So I uh, uh, appreciate your time and uh, cheers. Yeah, yeah great. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you very us. much for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Nice meeting you. Cheers.